This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, U.S. Navy Commander Andy Mariner, Commanding Officer of the Navy's Fighter Weapons School, provides an in-depth look at the storied institute better known as Top Gun. Let's rock. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. My name is Vincent Aiello. I am your host, and this is Episode 7. And yes, we are going to compare the real Top Gun to the movie of a similar name. Just a side note on that real quick. The Navy spells Top Gun in one word, all capitals, although it's not an acronym. And the movie, as you are probably aware, is two words, each capitalized. Well, we've got a long and very interesting interview coming up. Before we get to it, though, let's take a look at a few of the questions I've received recently. The first is from Ashwin from India. This is really an awesome podcast, he says. It's extremely inspiring and informative for an aspiring fighter pilot like me, parentheses, preparing hard to join the Indian Air Force. I would like to hear lots of fascinating stories in the upcoming shows. Okay, Ashwin, you got it. My question, can you tell us about challenges in low-altitude flying? Can an airplane go supersonic at low altitudes? Well, Ashwin, the biggest challenge with flying at low altitude is making sure you don't hit the ground or some other obstacle. So whereas at higher altitudes, you might be able to spend more time looking inside, at lower altitudes, you have to spend more time looking outside just to make sure your flight path is above the ground or any obstacles. Now, as regarding your question for supersonic at low altitudes, it really depends. Now, the thing is, the speed of sound is higher at low altitudes than it is up at higher altitudes, mainly due to the increased temperature of the air. So at higher speeds of sound, you have to fly faster to get to that Mach 1, which is the ratio of your speed to the speed of sound. So at Mach 1, those two numbers are the same. Well, the problem, as you know, is some aircraft will be limited in their thrust to go to those higher speeds. And so while they may be able to go supersonic at higher altitudes, it's not so easy at lower altitudes. And in fact, at flybys, let's say, uh, you don't see them too often at regular air shows because you're not allowed to break the speed of sound. But if you ever have a chance to go out on an aircraft carrier, they will frequently try to do at the air show they'll put on for, let's say, a Tiger cruise, they will try to break the speed of sound. And it generally takes a little effort on the part of the F-18. The F-14 used to have no problems. It would sweep the wings and come by and rattle the windows. Uh, But the F-18 had to be in full afterburner and come down in a descent and then level off. In fact, a good friend of mine earned the call sign semi because of a famous picture that's taken of him where he came by in an attempted supersonic flyby but was only semi-sonic and a big cloud enveloped him and some photographer grabbed a shot of it right at that time and it looks like he's flying through a cloud but really it's a condensation of the shockwave that formed around his aircraft so it's pretty cool. Anyway, let's get on with Ashwin's next question which is, have you participated in any bilateral exercises with India? If yes, how are our fighter pilots? I know they will be one of the best, but still would like to hear it from you. 
well, Ashwin, if you want to hear it from me, okay, they're one of the best. <laughs> but no, actually, I don't know. Unfortunately, I was never involved with any bilateral exercises, but I've read some magazine articles that uh, come from pilots who have, and it sounds by all accounts that you are correct. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. Hey, good morning, Vince. This is Shannon from Phoenix, Arizona. We've emailed back and forth a time or two. My question for the podcast is, do the jets have uh, some sort of an air conditioning? Is it just bleed air from the engines? Is it uh, like the air conditioning in your cars? I've just always wondered that. Uh, something to try to keep the pilots comfortable when they're in stressful situations. So, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. And uh, like everyone else is saying, I haven't really loving the podcast. This is amazing. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Shannon, thanks for your question. So, yes, as you surmised, all fighters, to my knowledge, do have a heating and cooling system, and the heating just pulls the bleed air off of the engines, which is already very hot, just has to condition it down a little bit. And then we have an air conditioning unit as well. And we just have one rotary knob, rolls left and right, and it just controls the amount of heating or cooling to the pilot. So, great question. Don't always work perfectly, especially on the older Hornets, but... Uh, they are there for our comfort. All right, my final question for this week is from Six Shot in Upper Scotland. I assume that's a nickname or call sign, but he says, Hello there. I'm hoping to one day join the Royal Navy's Fleet Air Arm, and I have a few questions. But first, I'd like to thank you for making this podcast, as there's been a rather severe lack of fight pilot related podcasts. What's your opinion on aircraft becoming more and more automated with less input being needed from the pilot? i.e. F-35 and other fifth-generation fighters. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword as it could help alleviate stress from pilots in stressful situations, but also make it so the pilot can't do exactly what's needed in certain situations. Well, Six Shot, thanks for your question. You know, this is a lot like asking, do anti-lock brakes make people better drivers or not? And, you know, there's some argument to that. Because essentially what it does is save you in certain situations, but perhaps it makes you more lazy so you don't have to, you know, think ahead and get on the brakes as early. I'm not sure what stance to take on that, but in regards to aircraft, I think that the increased automation is a benefit. Now, generally, aircraft won't absolutely keep you from doing something. So, for example, the F-18 limits you to 7.5 Gs. But there is an override switch on the stick. And so if it's either hit the ground or overstressed the airplane, the aircraft will allow you to pull that switch, if you will, and exceed 7.5 Gs. Now, you may down the aircraft for overstress and bending the wings, but at least you come home alive and the aircraft may or may not be usable. So I think it's good to have that technology. And I think it will still make pilots better because we're going to hold each other to a higher standard. All right, we've got a long interview, so we're going to wrap it up right there. Remember, please, that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent position of the Department of Defense or its components. Okay, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, I am joined by my very good friend, Commander Andy Mariner, United States Navy, call sign Grand. Grand, welcome to the show, buddy. Joe, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, hey, before we get to the subject at hand, listeners need to get to know you. Give us a little background on yourself, if you would. So I was actually uh, born in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, probably wondering why I joined the Navy being so far from uh, an actual ocean, uh, but I actually had two cousins before me that went to the Naval Academy. 
Uh, and I elected to go do that as well and uh, get my commission via that route. I'd always wanted to fly airplanes. So uh, when I graduated, I went to flight school in Pensacola and got selected to fly jets, which was pretty awesome. So completed my jet training uh, and got trained in the F-18 Hornet in uh, Lemoore, California, and I've flown Hornets ever since. Uh, I was most recently the CO, the commanding officer of VFA-105, a strike fighter squadron uh, located in Oceana, Virginia. And I'm currently serving as the commanding officer of Top Gun, or the Navy Fighter Weapons School. And that is the subject of our discussion today. So Top Gun, what Navy Fighter Weapons School, what is that? So the listener, I hope, is probably familiar with the movie by a similar name, slightly different arrangement of letters. But what is Top Gun? So Top Gun uh, was founded back in 1969. Maybe people don't know that. If they've seen the movie, they've probably seen those opening credits that talk about the history. And that's probably one of the things the movie actually did get right. Uh, it was founded by guys who had to scrounge for resources and assets in order to make naval aviation better, make them better warfighters. Uh, and they were able to put together a school that basically got graduate level training uh, available for folks in the fleet to come back, uh, get back out to the fleet and give that good training back to the rest of the folks out there. And it's morphed over time. Obviously, it started early on uh, focusing on air-to-air employment during Vietnam. The kill ratios for the Navy were pretty lackluster in the early years of Vietnam, and they knew they needed something different. So they elected to form this school. And today, it's morphed into something much bigger and a trained strike fighter aviators to be those tactical experts makes them the best JOs in the fleet, and we send them back out there to be training officers. So J.O. being junior officer, so these are lieutenants, similar to, and again, I'll draw parallels to the movie because, uh, again, that's what people are familiar with, but uh, Maverick was a lieutenant by rank in that. So guys that come to Top Gun, you're calling it a school, but it's not necessarily an initial school, like flight school, per se. No, yeah, you're exactly right. This is this is graduate-level training. This is these guys, well, you could call it getting their master's degree, I suppose, because they've done the initial training. They've gotten good in the fleet, and they're so good that we selected them to go to Top Gun to make sure that they got that added bit of training so that they can go back out and make the rest of the fleet just as good as they are. So they become the subject matter experts. I mean, every F-18 pilot should be, hopefully, good at what they do, but these are the no-kidding experts. So when you wear that patch, you're conveying to everybody that patch on your flight suit or jacket. You're conveying that you have made the cut to uh, a, to be a Top Gun graduate. So you say that it started because we weren't very good at the time. So we had some guys that basically, like you said, uh, got the resources they needed to come up with this school. It started in uh, Miramar, San Diego area in, San, in uh, California. And in 1996, I believe it was, it moved up to its current location. Right, yeah. It's, uh, it's now moved up to Fallon, Nevada, the oasis of the desert, if you will. Uh, real great place to live. You guys should come visit sometime. Look me <laughs> about up when you're an out hour there. east of Reno. Is yep, that correct? About okay. hour east on I eighty from uh, from Reno. Okay, and you said earlier it you, it started based on poor air to air performance, but today it takes F eighteen pilots and makes them at the top level of what they do. So it's more than just air to air. So what does the course look like today? So yeah, and if you think about it, you go back to nineteen sixty nine. All of our platforms were. They were good at what they did. The F-4s were great at air-to-air employment, and those certain squadrons did what they needed to do. The A-4s and the A-7s would go out there and bomb. And, you know, back in the day, like you talked about before we moved up to Fallon, you had Strike U and Fallon, and you had Top Gun down at Miramar. Now we both fall together under the same boss, which is fine. Uh, obviously, Top Gun still does what it needs to do, but we don't really have the luxury of specializing in the FA-18 Hornet, obviously the F standing for fighter and the A standing for attack. So we have to do both roles. So we take these students all the way through 
1v1 basic fighter maneuvers where they learn how to basically control the jet and fight 1v1 against another guy in close quarters. And then we take them through air to surface phase where they learn how to use the jet to bomb and do close air support or cast. And then uh, from there we go into section phase, which is basically taking two ships out to operate together. And again, that works them up on the fundamentals of basically using the radar, visual lookout, and then executing 2v1 maneuvering. So two jets against one in very close quarters. And then to cap it all off, we take them through division phase where they'll execute with three students and one instructor, so four jets total in the division, and we'll bring that high-end threat uh, for them to face. And then what we've also added most recently is fighter integration, so we'll bring fifth-gen platforms like the F-35 up to Fallon, and they'll see that firsthand getting to go out there and operate with a next-gen fighter. So fifth-gen, next-gen, just meaning unlike F-14s and F-18s, these are platforms that have advanced sensor fusion. I yeah, mean, there's exactly. everything's coming together. You have incredible situational awareness. Plus, they probably have stealth. It's a, they leap, have it's a weapons, leap in generational capabilities sure. is really what it is over the okay. F-18s. So when a student goes through this course, how long is the course? course right now is about 12 weeks, depending on the class size, and that changes all the time. And we execute three classes a year, uh, starting in January, again in May, and then we start a final class in August. Uh, and they'll run anywhere between 12 to 14 weeks, depending on the class size. Okay. So when they're going through, you said, first off, they'll do a one versus one. So they're working on the fundamentals of maneuvering their aircraft right. to not only, you know, if you start in a neutral setting, let's say, to try to get to the advantage on the other guy. But if you start in a defensive situation, you want to neutralize. Or if you have someone off your nose, you want to keep that offensive capability. So you're, you're trying to become an expert at that. But then in the two and four plane um, flights or phase of, of training, you, are you flying against other aircraft or adversaries or what, who are you training against? Yeah, you're training against the other adversaries. That's one of the neat things about the class that we run is we don't do just strike fighter instructors. We also create adversary instructors and we're going to create air intercept controllers or AIC. So there's going to be folks that are OSs, they're going to be enlisted, uh, and we usually bring OS1s or first-class petty officers or OSCs who are OS chiefs, uh, operational specialists, uh, mm -hmm. OS is what that uh, stands for, uh, and they're going to come up to Fallon and we're going to work together. The adversary students are going to come and they're going to lead hops against the fighters all the while while the AIC is controlling those fighters when they're going out there to do their job. Okay, so the controller you're talking about, again, drawing the parallel back to the movie, is the guy, it was either the beginning or the end, or maybe both, I don't recall, but he's the one talking to the fighter pilots, telling them, hey, here's where the bogeys are, how the, how many miles away. Yeah, exactly, and, that guy looking at that old uh, green blippy radar screen. The old scope, the, yeah, okay. The old scope on the, on the carry there, but yeah. He's, he's the guy that we're bringing out to Fallon, the guy or gal that we're bringing out to Fallon uh, to execute that from our uh, building as they go out and do their training. So a team of, or a group or whatever, of what, 14 students will show up. Most of them are your future strike fighter tactics instructors, which is a Top Gun graduate. And But some of them, like you said, are the adversaries. So you might have two guys are in the same class and are friends. But in fact, they're kind of on different sides of the game, if you will, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you think about it, we bring generally between eight and 10 Navy crews. And I say crews because we also bring uh, F-18Fs, which are the two-seat variant of the uh, F-18 Super Hornet. 
Uh, so we're going to bring weapon systems officers as well. So a nine crew class could have three F crews. So in the end, you could wind up with actually 12 total strike fighter instructors. Uh, and our adversary classes are anywhere between three and five folks. And our AICs are, again, anywhere between three and five folks, depending okay. on the number of applicants. And we're also flying all gamuts of airplanes when those guys come up. So our adversary folks are flying F-5s. They're flying F-16s. Uh, they're flying F-18 Hornets, depending on where they're coming from. Uh, so they're they're running every different uh, type model series of airplane when they come to Fallon. So I imagine that class is pretty tight by the end of that thing because that's a pretty arduous course. Yeah, uh, and you can find probably, you know, you do the math, there's 21, 22 folks all going through. And, you know, I still know all the guys I went through, even the AICs and the and the uh, adversaries that were there while I was going through the class. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So the two friends who are on opposite sides, I mean, is that is there that adversarial relationship like you might see in the movie? I mean, is, is it is it painful or are they friends or how, how is it? No, and I think that's a great point. You know, you look at the movie and they're, they're making it like a competition, but in the end, we want these guys to, for lack of a better word, cooperate to graduate, right? These guys are going through something that's very difficult. And, you know, you talked about the 1v1 BFM, the basic fighter maneuver syllabus. If you see how these guys go through that, they're reflying those hops over and over again just to learn the basic sight pictures. And guess what? They're helping each other. You walk in there the first couple of days of the class, and what they've got to do is they've actually got to give the brief as a lab. So they're going to brief what they're going to go out there and do. They don't go fly it right afterwards, but they're going to brief a very savvy instructor on what they're going to go out and do. And you'll watch the first few days of the course, the students are briefing each other on how to go out there and do that to help each other out, to give critiques and to help out with the brief so that when they face the instructor for the first time, they're actually going to do well and pass it. Uh, why And what's the big deal on the brief? I mean, is it not just, hey, here's what we're doing today, let's go? No, and see, that's probably another kind of thing that you got to think about from the movie where they're like high-fiving and walking to the Jets and going, <laughs> I'm not going to say it because I'll get fined $20, but... You go through the brief at Top Gun and you're actually spending 45 minutes to an hour talking about the minutia of exactly what you're going to go out there and do in detail. Uh, you're not leaving anything out. You want to make sure that you brief to basically good execution and you want to brief to success. So whatever mission you're going to go out there and do, you want to make sure you cover all the highlights so that when you get out there, I don't want to say it as a bad way, but you don't want to waste the time and the gas because if you think about it, we're sending four airplanes out there to face eight to 10 adversary airplanes. So each time you're sending 14 airplanes airborne for those three students to get uh, one look at that division ride. And guess what? They still refly division rides. So they don't get it right the first time. But going through those briefing labs just helps them to understand what they need to focus on when they go out there to actually do the hop. So there's a lot of involvement in the preparation for the flight. Right, probably a lot more than the flight itself. Oh yeah, way more than the flight. And then what sure. happens when we get back? You know, we're all again. Uh, we have all seen the gutsiest move. Are you not allowed to quote the movie? By I'm, the way, I will not. Am quote I the allowed? Movie. I, you can you can quote okay, the good. movie all you want. Uh, <laughs> um, so you know, we're all familiar with so and so does a whatever maneuver and gutsiest move. I mean, when you guys get back, do you just watch the cartoon characters fly at each other and then call it a day, or is it a pretty quick debrief? No, I I, I would say it's way more in depth than what you saw uh, in Top Gun the movie. So you think about our class structure and the these kids are getting up at four forty five in the morning in the summertime when it's light. Uh, early, these guys are having their first briefs at five in the morning and the first takeoffs are at seven 30. So they're briefing an hour and 30 minutes prior to takeoff. We give them an hour to walk. And then when they land after probably a 45 minute hop at the, at the tactical airspeeds, we're talking here and going through gas pretty quickly. 
they're spending the first 45 minutes validating their shots, uh, making sure that what they did was valid out there. And then we're going to go into the mass debrief and we're going to sit and we're going to watch the entire thing up on the, on the display. And we're going to rerun through the whole thing, basically stopping to make sure that guys took valid shots. And then we're going to kill, remove the enemy. And that's going to take anywhere between 40 and 45 minutes. And then post that, we're actually going to do a comm review to make sure that we were using the proper comm terms. And I guess you, you probably want to know why that's important. You know, comm is, is difficult. Guys are listening to two radios, sometimes four, depending on what the systems they've got installed on the aircraft. Uh, you think about that for a second. No one can listen to four radios and talk on four radios at the same time. So these guys got to get good at getting what they want out there, making sure that what they say is what everybody in the flight needs to know. So we go through that, and we're and we're tough on each other, right? Basically, the rules for a comedy are you get three seconds to correct yourself, and if you don't, someone else is going to correct you. And it's good. It's a it's a good form of peer pressure for these guys because we're all type A personalities in this in this kind of business. And all the kids who come through the class are type A personality. I keep saying kids. I feel so old when I'm saying kids about these <laughs> By guys. Our standards, the they class. are. They are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel old now when it's been, you know, 11, 12 years since I actually sat and went through the class. And here I am, the boss of the place where the guys are going through. But yeah, and, and we'll go through that comm debrief. And that'll take basically that's at one time speed. So they're watching the whole thing back through. Uh, so if the fight took 30 minutes, we're spending 30 minutes listening back to the comm. So now what am, I, what am I adamant about a, an hour and 15 minutes for the debrief? And it's still not over because now they're going to go back and look at their tapes. They're going to go look at their mechanics. They're going to go look and make sure they use the radar correctly. And they're going to find the debriefing points and things that they want to work on for the next flight. Because guess what? If it's their 4.1 ride, which is their first division ride. Uh, so again, four airplanes going out there. They're probably going to refly it. They're probably going to go do it again. Uh, so they want to learn what went wrong the first time so they can go back out and do it well the next time. Why so many reflies? Just because the standard is so high? I think you're right. We set the bar high and we do it on purpose because we want a quality product to go back out to the fleet. Again, you got to think the fleet is putting a lot of time and resources into these kids to get them the patch. Uh, we want them to be as good as they can be when they come out of a 12-week course. So in your earlier example, if there was a 5 o'clock brief, Let's say you, what time do you say you take off? About 7 about something. About 7.30. So, and then they land about maybe 8.39 or 8.30, let's call it. Um, so what time is that crew going to be done with everything? On, so if they land day? at 8.30, their debrief is probably going to start somewhere around 9.30, 9.45. So you can imagine by lunchtime, they're probably getting to the tapes. Uh, so I would think by, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they might be finally wrapping up the the debrief of the brief. Wow. And that's one thing I forgot to mention. You're going to go back and we're going to debrief how you briefed uh, <laughs> to get you to the level we need you to be uh, at briefing. Uh, again, a thing to uh, think about with that, though, and realize is that once they brief first, and if they do wind up refining the flight, the instructor may elect to call them brief complete. Uh, and then the next day, they're going to basically go do a tactical brief and then just brief for what they need for success that day, Whatever, uh, which will make it a little day. shorter. Yeah. yeah, it'll make it it'll make it so they're not spending an hour and they're talking about the hop. They're going to spend maybe 15 minutes talking about kind of the admin stuff, you know, getting the airplanes out to the uh, working area and just maybe three or four things they need to highlight for tactical execution that maybe they they messed up the day prior and they need to think about that day when they go out there. Cool. 
Let me just elaborate on a couple things you said, and then I'll ask you a question. So uh, you talked about a tape review. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that we have recording systems in these aircraft. Yeah, and um, I keep calling them tapes, and tapes really haven't been around for a long time. Hey, I'm, when I'm I came old, in, so they were three-quarter-inch tapes. Right, we had 30 and, minutes, buddy. eight-millimeter tapes that I'm used to. Uh, <laughs> now it's all digital, right? Right, now it's all recordable. But the idea is you can record what? Even your helmet now, right? You're, right. You're, you you're can, sighting you your helmet, record. your displays, your radar, everything, and you can come back and look at it all. And that's where I think... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is where the real learning takes place. Exactly. The, is the, in the end, when you come back, you just experienced it. Now you're going to pick it apart right. bit by bit because that's what a graduate level person needs to be able to do. You're going to go look at your tapes one time And speed. you're going to perfect it if you can. And, yep. and if necessary, go out and do it hopefully better the next day or uh, whenever they can reschedule you. And that's the whole goal. And you'd be you'd be amazed at how well these guys do at, at uh, picking up on the learning points that they need to and going out the next day and executing. It's a steep learning curve for sure. Huge. Now, in the movie, at the end, when they have their little mix-up with ostensibly MiG whatever 28s and they're really black T-38s or something, you know, again, and, and I should have probably said this at the beginning. Of course, Hollywood has to sacrifice some reality for uh, an entertaining show. I mean, could you imagine a movie that summarized an eight-hour evolution for one lousy flight? I mean, nobody's going to want to watch that. You'd probably be a little that. bored, right? Right, exactly. But in the movie, there is a scene towards the end where they're kind of desperate, and they, you know, he doesn't quite have the tone, and that whole thing is kind of hokey anyway. But uh, he doesn't have the tone. But the point is, is, is the system wasn't ready. Squeezes the trigger anyway, and lo and behold, the missile just goes flying off into space. Well, you had said earlier, uh, shot valve, which of course I understand, having lived this life. Um, but but to talk for a second why it's important to validate uh, when you squeeze the trigger and in training simulate shooting a missile. So so we obviously validate because we want the missiles to go there. We want them to leave the airplane and hit the enemy aircraft that we're targeting. Have the desired effect, essentially. Right. Yeah, I want the desired effect. I want to put, you know, for lack of a better term, warheads on foreheads, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, but I want to teach that guy how to get really good at sitting in the cockpit, looking around at all his displays very rapidly, and going, yes, if I pull the trigger right now, I'm giving this missile the best opportunity to do that for me. Uh, and there's a lot of things that that guy's checking. Uh, obviously, we won't go into kind of those mundane details, but he's got to get very good at going rapidly through. I mean, if you think about that, those two jets probably have 13, 1,400 knots of closure. So they're coming at each other with 1,400 miles an hour closure between the two of them. If you're 50, 60, 70, 80 miles away, that gets eaten up real quick when you're going those speeds. So... That guy's got to get good at, at executing good habit patterns every time. We always talk about consistent and repeatable at Top Gun, and that's what I want to make these guys learn how to do, and they need to learn every time to look for the exact same thing and go, yes, if I pull the trigger and that thing comes off my airplane, it is going to go downrange and it's going to kill the bad guy. So in other words, the aircraft provides information, again, like the movie, a little hokey, but the uh, thing would follow the airplane and turn red in that example. The modern-day fighter pilot has indications provided by the aircraft to say, okay, if you were to squeeze the trigger right now, you have the best chance, not 100%, but the best chance of the missile actually succeeding. Yeah, sure. And in our aircraft, the systems now are pretty ergonomic compared to what it looked like in the movie. You know, in the heads-up display, you're going to get an in-lar, which is a launch acceptability region. Uh, it's going to tell you, I think the missile can get there from like here. Like physically make the distance. Right, physically get there. There's going to be a lot of other indications in the cockpit. You know, in order to shoot a radar missile, I need to have some radar SA or situational awareness. I need to have the radar actually showing me a contact. 
uh, that can be one thing that, that trips a guy up. Uh, you're kind of watching everything to make sure that the target doesn't maneuver because if the target maneuvers, it's going to be de- very difficult for that missile to get there. So we teach them to kind of scan very quickly all the things that they're looking for in the on the mission computers and in the HUD, and then they know that they're good. And again, you know, the other thing you got to think about is they actually have the master arm on. They need to actually arm the system up so that the missile will come off, and we find guys do that a lot too. Uh, you'll find that more in the air to surface when we're actually releasing ordnance that they forget to arm up. Uh, but that's one of the things that we're kind of hitting them on and then making sure that we emphasize every time is that they're checking those things. So in other words, it would be like a police officer trying to shoot his pistol, but not having exactly. That's armed the, it. that's the, safe. Left the safety, that's on. the okay. safety on sure. the, on the, uh, F-18. Hornet. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So obviously a lot of effort goes into this. I mean, in, in our, uh, going back to our earlier example, the crew that's done maybe by three o'clock having stayed up late the night before preparing for this event. And even if they pass now, probably they've got another event the next day. Right. right? And, so, they're, and they're moving on. They might as well start thinking about the next thing that's coming. So down now all afternoon it's... they've got to prepare for tomorrow. So I'm guessing weekends are pretty busy. Yep. Uh, you could say that most of the time we're, we're flying on Saturdays or prepping on Saturdays. We do a lot of lectures from the instructors uh on saturdays because we need to fly during the week so if we need to make up some lectures or get something started we will come in on a saturday morning and uh start making it happen well that's why they pay you the big bucks i guess so pretty difficult syllabus requires a lot of effort but also a lot of ability i would say which can be developed uh specifically if you have the right attitude uh does everybody make it? I mean, no. And that, and that's a great point. You know, we, we kind of, I guess we glossed over it a little bit, but you know, Top Gun is not something that everybody's even getting invited to, right? It's a very rigorous selection process. You know, not every J.O. is going to get a shot at Top Gun. If you think about it and we're taking 12 Navy pilots and WIZOs or weapon systems operators, again, every class, and there's three classes a year, that's 36 guys in the Navy that are getting a patch every year. And they don't all get the patch. Uh, you know, I mean, even this just this last class, we had to try to student. And uh, that's difficult for everyone. And it, again, it's not for lack of effort on their part, usually. Most guys that show up here, they want to get through the class. They have the desire. Uh, but there is a bar, and we set it very high. And we want to make sure that that reputation, that the patch, you know, I, it's iconic to me. Uh, you pro- Everybody probably knows what that patch looks like. Or you can find it. Just Google it on the Internet. You'll see it. It's, it's a thing that's recognized, I think, throughout the armed forces. I mean, you go to the Air Force Weapons School down at uh, Nellis Air Force Base. They know that patch, and they're going to search those guys out if they're down there. The Marines, they get the same patch. The MOTS-1 guys down in Yuma, uh, but those guys, those guys know what the patch is. And some of those guys even come through the class as Marine Corps pilots. Uh, but it's recognized around, the, around aviation. It's recognized around the rest of the military, so... We kind of hold that near and dear to our hearts at Top Gun, and we want to make sure that those guys are upholding the standards that are set to get through that class. It's, to me, almost a symbol of instant credibility. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's a good segue because I use that in my lecture. So I give the patch lecture at the end of the class, uh, and it's really a, you know, for lack of a better word, it's a kind of a fatherhood session with all the guys that are about to get the patch. So they get the lecture from me about two hours before they actually go over to the officer's club at NAS Fallon uh, and get their patches from the rest of the staff. Uh, so there's a lot of looks like deer in the headlights in there because I think they might be not afraid of me, but they think it's just another lecture and they think that they're going to get asked a lot of questions. Uh, but I usually use the kind of icebreaker at the, at the beginning and say that 
hey guys, if you're sitting in this room right now with me giving you this lecture, you're going to get your patch. Like you can't fail this lecture. Uh, there's no way you're not making it out of this room. And I tend to try to bring a little beer in so that it makes it a little bit easier to, <laughs> to swallow when they sit in there and have to listen to me talk about it. But it's important. And yeah. I give them a lot of background on, on why Top Gun exists and then why it's important for them to go out there and represent the patch to the best of their ability, even, even if they elect to get out of the Naval Service. Um, there's there's still a patch where forever there's still uh, part of the fraternity right they're still part of that organization Mm -hmm. for as long as they're around i remember the uh the doors to the fleet training building one of the buildings where top gun is housed is the windows are they're not mirrored but you know you see yourself as you walk into it and i remember when i got my patch in 2000 walking to the thing and i would just tilt my shoulder a little bit so i could look at it in the windows like whoa i got a top gun patch (laughs) i'm not sure how that happened because i was definitely average but uh uh it worked out so you you talk to these guys on the way out the door and uh give them a little last minute fatherhood and at that point i'm thinking they felt pretty good because it's the culmination of a lot of hard work they hurry over to the club to get a beer after that. I imagine so. And then where do they generally go after that? So that's a, that's a good point. Uh, these guys are not all staying at Top Gun. Uh, a lot of them do stay. Uh, we keep guys on staff out of every class. Uh, and just for everybody to think about too, we're, we're starting to build strike fighter tactics instructors for the F-35 for the joint strike fighter. That's the newest the, basically the, right. fighter to come out. Yeah. So mm-hmm. those guys are coming through right now. We've had two folks go through, and they're going down to Lemoore or down to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida to get their training, the F-35. But right now, the vast majority of them stay on staff at Top Gun, uh, or they go to either Type Wing Weapons School. So they go to the East Coast Weapons School in Oceana, Virginia, or they go to the West Coast Weapons School down in uh, Lemoore, California. We've got onesies and twosies that may wind up going to VX-9, going to the test community, uh, maybe down in China Lake. And, and every once in a while, we'll send a guy through that goes to one of the the rags or one of the training squadrons for both coasts, which are VFA 106 and VFA 122. So Fallon is not a base where F-18 squadrons are typically based. And so what we have is a system, and I don't mean to denigrate the weapon schools, but they're essentially in effect satellites of Top Gun that exist where the squadrons are. They are. They're really the fleet training arm of Top Gun because Nautic in the end or the Naval Aviation Warfighting Development Center, which is what exists in Fallon, and that's where Top Gun falls under. Right. But they own both coast weapon schools, and and basically we use those those two satellite schools to train the rest of the fleet and bring them up to that same standard. So they're on site, whereas Top Gun is off site. Now, squadrons do come to Fallon for other things besides Top Gun. They'll come up for various other training evolutions. But at those on-site locations, you you now have these recently minted strike fighter training instructors who are right there flying with those squadrons day in and day out. And in fact, after that tour, either at the weapons school or Top Gun, if they stay as an instructor, then you go back to one of those squadrons as a training officer. Right. That's the best part about getting the patch. I mean, it's awesome to be a bro on staff, to, to be a guy who stays at Top Gun. It's awesome to be at one of the weapons schools and kind of be on the the cutting edge of technology, the cutting edge of tactics, uh, and all of that. But the real, the real cool part I think is when you get to go back to that fleet squadron. Uh, cause generally you go back and you're still a Lieutenant. You're still, you know, I'll go back to the movie. You're still Tom Cruise as he comes out of top gun and goes back to the Indian ocean. Uh, cause they need him to go back out on deployment. But guess what? You get to go back to a fleet squadron and your sole job in life is to train that squadron and make them the best at what they do. You don't stand SDO or squadron duty officer. 
You're not doing a whole lot of paperwork. You're not concerned with anything else that's going on except making those guys the best at what they do. And it's awesome. I, I mean, I've been the CEO of a fleet operational squadron. I'm the CEO of the Navy Fighter Weapons School. The best tour I ever had was the time I spent as a training officer getting to influence young junior officers and, and you know, in the end, make them want the patch just as much as I wanted it when I went through. Yeah, that's a testament to the job that you did. Now, you also train the guys above you. I mean, even the department heads and the XO and the CO sure, yeah. need tightening, if you will, from time to time. Yeah, and there's a lot of squadrons you'll find in the fleet that the only patch wearer may very well be the training officer. Uh, and and he's training the entire squadron. It's not just the rest of the JOs. It's it's everybody above and below. Sure. Now, one thing I thought the movie uh, missed the opportunity to do some justice on is, I mean, you've got, what, Charlie, which is, of course, the affection of Maverick, and then you've got the two guys at the top. What, what was it, Viper and um, Jester? Right. But you never really see another authentic Top Gun instructor. So for the guys who stay on the staff, what is that like? What, what's, what's a typical day like for oh them. man these guys uh i don't know they're, they're they're probably the greatest bunch of guys to work with uh guys and gals i should say uh they work their tails off uh these guys are you know if there's a brief at if there's a brief at 5 30 in the morning the junior bros or the or the guys who are most junior on staff they're probably in earlier prep and stuff and even the instructors are in early uh and you know for lack of a better term they they burn they burn the midnight oil as well so you know, when the day is done and, you know, we talked about the 730 takeoff. Well, that's just the first wave, right? So that's just the first, uh, say, section or first division that's going out there to fly. We do three waves a day. So you put that math together and you can realize that the last guys, if they land at 430 in the afternoon, they're not debrief complete until probably 1030, 11, 12 yeah, o'clock at night. Midnight, yeah. yeah, but they're going to turn around. They're going to go home. They're going to spend what time they can with their families, and they're going to come right back the next morning. They're going to start all over again. But besides that, I mean, so first off, they've graduated from Top Gun, and they typically know they're going to stay before. I mean, again, yeah. it's not like all of a sudden you do something cool and they invite you. But you know you're going to go there, and that's a very rigorous selection process based on the people that are already there and your reputation. And then you're expected to not only be there early and do all those things, but I mean, you've got to now be the expert capable of teaching these graduate level students. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've got to be pretty darn good in the airplane, but what about on the ground? I mean, what about these lectures that they give? Oh yeah, you're right. So I, you know, we talk about the, you, you talked about it earlier, the SMEs, the subject matter experts. Uh, so these guys are the Naval aviation SMEs. They are the go-to guy. So of all the Navy, they are the expert on whatever the subject is. Yeah. And it's awesome to watch too, because these are, these are lieutenants. I mean, these are, these are 26, 27 year old kids. Again, so they've been in the kids. Navy yeah. eight or nine years, maybe. Sure. They've been, they've been in for not all that long, but they have a reputation, uh, as being the guys who know everything about what they need to know. And they do a very rigorous process to get that. I mean, obviously I know you've done that before, uh, they, they go through the process to make sure that their lecture is tight. Uh, and that includes, you know, doing a lot of pre-boards where they're getting, they're getting a lot of good input from a lot of the other bros on staff. And I say pre-board, so they've got a lecture they've got to do. Uh, and you know, their lecture could be anywhere from, you know, two hours in length to four and a half hours in length. And they're basically spending that entire time in 30 to 35 minute segments, teaching the students how to do a, a certain area so we can break it down and we can talk about it. So, you know, we've got an uh, 1v1 
uh, Air Combat SME. So he's a Marine on staff right now, but he's got a two-part lecture where he talks them through, just like we talked about earlier, offensive, defensive, and high-aspect BFM. And he's going to teach those guys everything they need to know. But he's also the, the SME to the fleet. So let's just say a squadron in Lemoore has a question about BFM or they want to change something about the training rules or they want to change something about uh, you name it, uh, or they want to know, or they want to get some more information, they're going to call that guy. So he's got to be the best he can be at his subject matter expertise area so that he can answer those questions. And I'm not just talking about other JOs. I've watched these guys, you know, again, I say it kind of lightheartedly, but I've seen them go toe to toe with admirals, uh, and put the information out there and they, they are so confident and they know what they're talking about that they are willing, and I'm willing to let them go toe-to-toe with captains and admirals because I know that they know the answer and I know that they're right. Yeah, well, those are the guys making the decisions, and they need the advice of the expert. And they need the unfiltered advice yeah. of the guy who knows exactly what's going on out there. Well, that's one privilege of being on the Top Gun staff is you generally have pretty incredible uh, credibility. The aptly named murder board process that you uh, alluded to there, having gone through it, uh, both of us have. It, it is aptly named because w- what they try to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is make the training environment, because you have so much to teach and so little time and so condensed that there can't be any distractions. So it's not just do you know the material, but it's can you present it articulately? Can you avoid doing silly things with your body that distract people? Can you convey it? Can you ask questions? Can you compose yourself? And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, When I went through the class in March of 2000, there was an instructor who had his murder board the day before. It was a homie Cedar home. I think he's like a one or two star general now in the Marine Corps. And his lecture, it was on, I want to say threat air to air missiles was so flawless that I was actually distracted because I thought, when is he going to make a mistake? His body position, his hands, everything he talked about. And oh, by the way, for folks that uh, aren't aware, I mean, we're not like reading notes and there's no like building slides on the PowerPoint. And they don't get to look at their slide because we call them out on slide peaks if they do it. It's literally, I am the expert on this. I'm going to tell you about it and I'm going to use these slides to back it up, but I'm not going to read off them or anything else. His was so perfect uh, that I was just sitting there thinking, I made the wrong choice. Because they had chosen me to go there, and I thought, there is no way that I can live up to this. Yeah, and I'm with you. I've, I've watched, uh, just just being on staff now for about eight months, I've watched a fair amount of murder boards uh, and pre-boards for that. And you can see the difference if you go to, uh, say, a pre-board three or four. And these guys are going to go through, you know, an average guy is probably going to go through eight or nine pre-boards before he even gets the chance to give his murder board uh, and that's, you know, you know, the, you know, as well as I do, they get the, the training officer, stand officer has to sit in on one of them. And that's the one that gives them the thumbs up to even be able to go to their murder board. Right. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a daunting thing. And even for me as the CO, as an 05, I had to sit in a, a TOSO pre-board and have the, the lieutenant training officer and lieutenant stand officer sit there and critique me and my khakis and talk about my stage presence and, and all the things. Because you were given the patch lecture. Right, because so I'm given the, the patch I had the same process. And they weren't going to let I'm, you slack off just because you're older. Right, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it, and it was an awesome process, and it's very cool. And, and you know, my lecture is only 45 minutes. It's not like these guys where they're going through multiple parts, and they've got to go through the media, and they've got to make sure that everything is flawless, and we do pick it apart. I mean, you sit in on a pre-board, and, you know, you talk about the brief and the debrief for the flights, you know, if you sit through a two and a half hour pre-board, the debrief of all those, you know, say three to four parts is probably going to be 
in excess of three, three and a half hours. Oh, it's an all-day event. It is. It <laughs> becomes an and a, and a murder board is even more. Oh yeah. Because when you throw all the bros in the auditorium, so now there's a staff of twenty four folks sitting there watching you and critiquing everything you do because you they're can, all experts on this too. Exactly. By the way. <laughs> and when you look out, and when you look out at the audience, and you got that little sweat dripping off your brow, and you're <laughs> and you're there. thinking, oh man, and and you know they're talking about they're gonna critique your time hack on the front end. They're gonna critique the fade on your music. They're gonna talk about your R and your T we're touching on this slide. But you know why we do that? Because we want that perfection. Because when I got that young lieutenant that is sitting in that auditorium, and just like you said before, I want him to have zero distractions. Uh, I don't want him looking at a slide when the guy's talking about something else, and that's why we bring up a blank slide, right? So there's all those things that we go through, and we rip that lecture apart. And you'd be amazed to see the difference between a pre-board one or two and a murder board. Uh, and I, I mean, I can say with enough, now that I've seen it, I've sat through a pre-board two or a pre-board three, and then go in and sit through the murder board on that last day. And it is a very polished product by the time these guys are finished with it. Right. So every other person on the staff ends up seeing the lecture twice because the pre-board, as you're calling it, is a lecture that you're giving, but there may only be two or three people yeah, I've in seen the room. Even pre-boards with so only one it, guy sitting there. Right. You see it then. And then when the two ranking lieutenants, so this is not a very top-heavy organization. It's really run by the uh, the Indians, if you will. But there's two that migrate to the top based on performance and, and everything else. Once they give it the blessing, then everybody comes back and you hear it again. So I'll tell you, um, just to, to finish the, the point is I ended up with two lectures. And the first one, it wasn't perfect, but it rarely is. And the point is, again, that you don't, if you do make a mistake, that you don't draw this big, oh my gosh, and make a distraction out of it. You just, oh, you know what? And here's the picture of this. Whatever. You say, In my case, you, say I was, you say correction and you right, continue. And you move on. But the second time I ended up with a four part lecture, it was three and a half hours. And I'll never forget when I wrapped up on the last slide, any questions, you know, thanks, give me five minutes for critiques or whatever, like we always do. I'd never felt higher. It was still, I think, to this day, the pinnacle of my career because I did a three and a half hour, hour lecture without the use of notes. And I mean, I'm sure there was one or two things, but from my point of view, I nailed it. And so it was it was great because, and I'm not bragging about Jello here. I'm saying what the human being is capable of is amazing because you pour yourself into this thing as a Top Gun instructor and you do become the fleet expert on it. And you know it so well. I mean, I could talk about myself for three and a half hours, and I felt it was the same way about that particular subject because you just gotten to the point through the uh, sharpening, if you will, of your fellow instructors and the research that you do that by the time you give it, you really have earned the right to be called the fleet expert. And then I'll tell you one more thing. When I left and was on my train officer tour, which I think is where we met, uh, different squadron, but same air wing, another squadron had asked me to come over and talk about an area that was not my subject matter expertise. And I remember giving basically what like a chalk talk about it. And when I got done and we finished with questions and I looked at what I'd written on the board, I just had this epiphany. It's like, I didn't know I knew that, <laughs> but you're so exposed to it from being there living it day in and day out that I would say, I don't know, tell me your thoughts, but a former top gun instructor who goes back to the fleet as a, t as a training uh, officer is probably about the best of the best. And I, I hate to use that term, but I mean, based on what they've been through, there's not much more a guy can do without being, uh, forget graduate level, that's PhD at that point. Yeah, and, and he's at the top of his game. And, and you you said it best, you, you go back and you, you do that lecture. And I'll tell you, that is probably one of the most humbling experiences to go through that process. But you realize at the end that you're so good that you take, you know, maybe 
eight, nine, ten weeks off before you got to give it the next time. And it comes back because you put so much effort into making it good. And then you know it so well that you can basically kind of go off the cuff as you do the lecture for the class. And you don't worry about getting a little out of order because you, you know exactly what you're talking about. and You know exactly where you are. Uh, I'll tell you, even on my last time I gave, the second time I gave the patch lecture, I was so comfortable that I cut a bunch of slides out and I put a blank slide in it because I thought the information was so important that I didn't want them looking at anything on the slide. And I just talked through it. And I had a, about a 10-minute conversation nice. with the students saying, hey, I don't want you even looking at what's up on the screen. I want you to look at me and, and listen to what I'm talking about because I think it's that important. Uh, so that's And that's where these guys get to. They get so good that they might go and click through their slides real quick the night before. But the next day, they just rock through it, and they, and they nail it every time. So you go through all that work to graduate from the class. Then you get on the staff. You get a subject area, and you got to be the expert at that. Then you've got to probably learn how to instruct in the section and division phases you were talking about. So it's probably not a very easy tour, huh? No, uh, these guys put in a lot of effort. I think, the, I think one of my favorite lines that I usually hear from guys as they leave staff is that I love this tour, and I hated it at the same time because <laughs> – they, they, they do put in, I mean, and you said it best, they, they, all the things you've got to do. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, we fly the F-16 up in, in Fallon so you have to learn and, a new and we've got Viper U. So a lot of my guys, especially top gun folks have to go learn how to fly the F-16 too. So now they're triple NATOPS qualified. So they've got a qualification in the, in the A through D Hornet. They've got a qualification in the EF, the super Hornet. Now they've got a qualification in the F-16A. So you're talking, uh, you got to know stuff cold. And then just like you said, they get done with that lecture process and becoming the SME. Uh, and we've, we've talked about it a lot, even on staff, but you know, yes, you are now what we call the SME after your lecture process, but you're still very much learning what's going on. Oh, sure. uh, and, you, never and ends. yeah, now you go through the whole IUT process and, and you learn how to be a good adversary to make sure that the red air presentation for the students is good. Then you learn how to be a section instructor. Then you learn how to be a BFM instructor, and then you're going to learn how to be a division instructor kind of in your last year. Right as you're leaving. Yeah. So IUT being instructor under training. So you've got to learn how to teach all those things. And then right as you're leaving, you've got to teach those other guys that were you two years ago, how to teach. You're you're imparting that wisdom to the next generation. Circular argument. But when you leave, you really are. No, there's no one better. Yep. Well, that's pretty amazing. All right, so what? It's not a staff of 24 Mavericks? Uh, it's not a bunch of guys that can just do whatever they want, uh, flybys? Is that, no, does that happen? It is the. it might be the exact opposite. It's probably the most humble group of guys you'll ever meet. They are quiet professionals is, is kind of how I would put it. Um, there's not a lot of hot dogging or okay, flat hatting, no flybys. if you will. Volleyball? No volleyball. No volleyball. Uh, okay. Um, the pool's also filled in in Fallon, so there's, okay. no, there's no pool anymore. Can't drive the golf carts into the pool. Complicated relationships? Uh, no, there's really actually not a lot of drama. Okay. It's actually pretty good. Uh, so, again, a, a real-world movie on Top Gun... Would be pretty boring. Would be, yeah. Would I mean, be, uh, you know, fact, like, you it, talk about the competition between, <laughs> I'm going to say it, Maverick and Iceman. There's no competition at Top Gun. These no guys trophies? are... No trophies. The, okay. Yeah, got it. No, there's no trophies. Right. Uh, these guys are working to build each other up. Uh, they want to make each other better. The students in the class want to make each other better. I mean, I'll tell you what. Like, I've got some folks on staff that are probably the best 1v1 in the airplane that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I get to be, you know, I get to fly against those guys and get humbled. And it's very, it's very, a very cool experience to watch them either make a mistake 
or do something and then that they didn't intend to do and come back and admit to it and it just devastates them because they're like, I gotta fix this. <laughs> and these are the guys that know better than anybody out in the fleet how to do this. I mean, these guys just they're at the top of their game, but they're very they're very hard on themselves and they hold themselves to that high standard all the time. Well, it just goes to prove uh, what I tried to intimate earlier, which is mistakes happen. Everybody, even these guys make them. I think the, the trick time. is you own up to it, number one. Well, you recognize it maybe number one. You own up to it, number two. But then you also evaluate it. Uh, yeah, and you, and you learn try to, and, and you try to fix it. You, you, you learn it, you take it to the next, the next phase and you fix sure, it. Sure, that guy can make it, anyone can. Well, so I guess they're st- talking about coming out with a Top Gun too. Maybe it'll be more accurate, huh? I, I would hope so. Uh, we've actually had the we've actually had the producer and the uh, writer of Top Gun Two have uh, visited us in Fallon. No kidding. Uh, and talked about the uh, next movie. Uh, I'm not going to give away any secrets. Okay. But, uh, but uh, they are they are a, a cool group of guys, and they were very interested. Uh, they seemed very knowledgeable about uh, Top Gun, um, and we did try to put some impart some of the wisdom of what's going on up there, and try to show them exactly what we do on a daily basis. Uh, they got to sit through an event. Uh, they got to talk to all the bros on staff, uh, and they got to get a run through of kind of everything that goes on at Top Gun on a daily basis. So, we'd like to think that they're going to take that and uh, and put it into a realistic type movie. Well, we'll see. I guess. What does the future hold for the school? Uh, I hope it continues to produce the 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 most high quality naval aviators for a long, long time to come. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a place that has, you know, almost 50 years of, of history. So in 2019, it will be the 50th anniversary of Top Gun. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a long tradition that started with, you know, some folks that are, that are still out there and, and they're, very, uh, they're very into the Top Gun thing and they're very supportive of everything that's going on. Uh, and the Naval Aviation Enterprise is very supportive of what's going on at Top Gun. Because uh, they know that we produce those high-quality graduates that are going to go back there and do that training officer tour uh, and continue to make those fleet squadrons better. Well, we'll have to make sure that someone prepares the proper anniversary celebration of that one because that's a big milestone and uh, get as many of the old bros, as you call them, which aren't all men, by the way, right? There have no. been female uh, Top Gun instructors. So. We actually have a female chief on staff right yeah. now. That's why I kept trying to correct myself we, and go and, back. And it's and fine. I, you know, I think I said it in the uh, episode zero. We, we tend to speak in the masculine terms because numerically that's the most common, but it's it's by no means intentional as far as trying to rule out anyone. But um, bros are just the name that, uh, that the Top Gun instructors give each other. And, um, uh, yeah, that'll be a really exciting celebration. I hope I can make that. Well, Grant, I want to uh, thank you for coming on today and uh, dispelling possibly some of the silliness of the movie, uh, but also talking about Top Gun, what it does uh, for not only for the Navy and for individual pilots and uh, air crew and adversary, but really the nation, because these are the people that are out there uh, taking care of business uh, yeah. over Syria, over Libya, over uh, everywhere around the world. And and the few that go through are influencing all the rest in the air wing and, and making them better and it's an important school founded on uh, a lack of capability that we had, but God willing, going forward, making us uh, lethal and, and effective the rest of uh, while there's still manned aircraft. Huh? Yep. Glad to do it, Joe. It was awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, hey, wait, before you go, we do have a little tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast that uh, everybody's got to explain their call sign. So, uh, Grand Mariner, uh, tell us yours. All right. So it's not even that cool a story. <laughs> uh, and you obviously knew, I'll leave him nameless, but you knew the skipper that gave me the call sign. 
Uh, he was 51% of the vote is what I always say. Hopefully he doesn't ever listen to this, but, uh, obviously it's just a take on my last name. He, uh, he thought it was Marnier when I showed up. So therefore like the liquor, Grand Marnier, I just got stuck with Grand. Uh, I wish there was a really cool story behind it. There is one little kind of cool story. That's a take on it that some of the, you know, my department head buddies and, and folks know that one, but, uh, I was called Grande for a while, like the, the <laughs> Spanish variant. Sure. Uh, and it, I'll make the story relatively quick, but I actually got deported from Qatar, which is that little country in the, <laughs> in the Persian this. Gulf, uh, during my department head tour around 2013, 2014. Uh, but I wound up in Rota, Spain for four days, uh, and they all thought I was just uh, drinking wine and eating tapas on the beach. So uh, I got back, and uh, they all started calling me Grande because... Uh, that's the Spanish first. It was just some of, diplomatic paperwork that wasn't done yeah, correctly it was a, or something. I, I think it was kind of a little bit of a it was a this was a misunderstanding between the Qataris and the United okay. States Navy. That's how we'll label it. All right. So grand like as in Grand Manier, not that not because of your stature, the fact that you're like six foot eight or something? No, that's it has nothing to do with that. It was okay. it was solely that and that's what stuck from the first okay. call sign review board I had and that's what it's been ever well, since. Well, probably better because if you'd have done something dumb, we'd be calling you that, and then you would have to live with that. But uh, you're not six eight. How tall are you? I'm only six four. Six four. Okay, I was close. All right, Grand. Well, I do appreciate you talking Top Gun with us today, and I uh, just want to wish you all the best in the remaining of your career. I know you got a bright future ahead of you, whatever you decide to do. But uh, unless you got anything else, let's get out of here. Nope. Let's do it. All right. See ya. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure you're disappointed to know there's no volleyball and whatever else at the real Top Gun. But uh, like we said, you know, movies got to be a little more exciting than we are in real life. I know Grand and I went over a lot of terms. We'll throw those on the glossary tab of our website. As well, he said the word MOTS and neither one of us could come up with it. That is the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron. It's similar to Top Gun, but based down in Marine Corps Air Station, Yuma, Arizona. And they involve a few more players than just the strike fighting F-18s. They will include some of the helicopters and other components of the Marine Air Ground Task Force. All right, well, that will do it for this episode. We've already been through all the caveats and explanations of where you can find us. So we'll just wrap it up here. Uh, but before we go, if you enjoyed that little ditty at the beginning, and we'll play it again here, I want you to know that my 17-year-old son played that whole thing himself. He played the different rhythm and lead guitar sections and even recorded the drums. So the kid's got a future in music, and we'll see if we can't get something else from him to include here on a future episode. All right, we'll look for us again in 10 or 11 days. And until then, you take it easy. See ya.